the lens through which we see the equine interactions is where we learn about people's unhealed mm. trauma history. And that is what's lovely about it is because they, as you said, they have their autonomy, the horses can come in or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off. I see a lot of equine assisted folks who will say, I got to figure out the activity I've got to do with my horse because I'm trying to do this with a client. I'm like, I don't know if we have to do as much, as much as we have to be in the moment and utilize what shows up within the phases of EMDR we're in. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, today we are taking a deep dive into a fascinating therapeutic modality with therapist Sarah Jenkins. Lindsay and I sat down to chat with Sarah all about the therapeutic method that she has truly been on the forefront and pioneering of called equine-assisted EMDR. She pulls back the curtain and answers all our questions. I loved how Sarah gave us a glimpse into both the modalities of EMDR and equine and how they can individually and collectively help those who have experienced trauma and whose past keep interrupting and interfering with their present. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. And if you are a mental health professional interested in learning more about equine-assisted EMDR, you can join Sarah at OnSite in 2023. Learn more about the training she's bringing in September of next year in today's show notes. Everyone, I'm so excited to get to sit down today with Sarah Jenkins, and I have so many questions as we are prepping for this interview because of what you specialize in and the way that you pursue therapy. I am just, I have so many questions and so excited to dive in. So As we do that, would you just kind of take us back? We often joke that you don't end up in the therapeutic profession by accident. And so (laughs) what was kind of your journey ending up becoming a therapist? Wow, I love that question. I'll try and make it not too long. So I have this distinct moment, literally when I was a teenager, in, in my own therapy, in my first round of therapy as a teenager, recovering from trauma, And I have this Mm -hmm. distinct pinpoint moment where I just had this awareness that it's just what I wanted to do. And from the age of 13, it's really all I ever knew I wanted to do. And and, and certainly that being said, Mm -hmm. that also comes from some distractions I had, you know, to try and work through some of my own traumas, you know, in my own healing journey, I realized that that was also at the time coming from some woundedness too. But as I come from a place of... Mm you know, an adult perspective and real centeredness now, as I look back, it, it just felt like it arrived. And I really couldn't have imagined it doing anything else, right? You know, I had someone asking me recently, what else would you be doing? Like, oh, you'd be a horse trainer. I'm like, nah, probably not. I'd probably be maybe teaching yoga more. But outside of that, it's just all I wanted to do. And I was really lucky enough to, I was involved in 4-H programs and a lot of uh, camp counselor programs, all these kind of things uh, that enabled me mm-hmm. to gain confidence and see the benefit of uh, connecting with people. And what I realized about that is that the ability to connect with people and have the sense of being present with people in their deepest of pains, it felt like it gave purpose to what I really recovered from. And 
it kind of came around and it made sense of what I'd gone through in terms of, oh, and, and this is the big picture. It's kind of a spiritual perspective in me that, oh, all right. So that's why I went through what I went through. So now I understand what it's like on the other side. Yeah. Um, and there's the, you know, myriad of technical things, trainings, therapeutic modalities, getting your master's degree, licenses, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the heart of it, that's really where it started. Yeah. From. I love that. That's awesome. Oh. Growing, where did you grow up? What part of the, did you grow up in the city or, or in the country? You mentioned yeah. 4-H and so I just, yeah, curious what 4-H implies, yeah, 4-H implies rural. So even <laughs> though my accent betrays me, um, I actually was born in the United Kingdom. I was actually born in the mountains of North Wales. Mm-hmm. I immigrated to the States when I was about seven years of age. My mom and I immigrated when she remarried, uh, an American. And so we, moved to the States to an area in Northern Virginia, uh, just my stepfather worked for the federal government. So we were still at that time in an area in Northern Virginia, which was pretty rural. So I grew up on a 200 acre horse farm. My mom was a therapeutic riding instructor, uh, raised horses, bored horses. She used to work a lot with uh, gun dogs, training gun dogs. So I was always in that uh, Hmm. nature, that true natural environment. So uh, you know, we lived on the top of a mountain 10 miles away from anybody, basically. So when I immigrated, we still lived in a rural area now in Northern Virginia. Anyone who's listening from the D.C. area knows that those areas, there's really not much rural area there anymore. I had the opportunity to live in green and live with horses and dogs. And, you know, we had this large life of animal connections and life. And when I got to Arizona, I actually, gosh, I don't know, I probably went to Arizona. I've probably been here, we think. 25, maybe 30 years now. I don't know, maybe ballpark. And am I, I used to all get these, these postcards from my dad. He lived in the Middle East and I would get these postcards at the desert from him uh, throughout my childhood as he was overseas for much of my childhood. And I think it kind of got in there unconsciously because somehow I ended up in the desert and I don't really see much green anymore. Yeah, <laughs> in the <wow>. desert. <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's what it's rooted in. <laughs> Not a lot of green anymore. I, you no. said your mom was a therapeutic horse trainer. I was interested yeah. when you said like at 13, I was in therapy and kind of, yeah. so I wondered if there was a schema or a stigma around therapy in your home. And so even hearing that your mom was involved in that, I just love to hear like what that was like growing yeah. up in that kind of environment where yeah. that was an option and something you could conceptualize. Sure. So at the time, um, you know, my my family was involved in working at a, another farm where they really did what we would call trekking. So it was more for physical disabilities and mental health related. Mm. Um, and so it was more of the physical perspective in terms of have a therapeutic riding bo- uh, modality for that. And it wasn't a formal training that she had at the time. It was just kind of, they were all trying to kind of fly by the seat of the pants, I think, back then in the early 70s. There was definitely a scheme around mental health in terms of, uh, you know, I grew up in a culture... Uh, especially very stereotypically British, stiff upper lip. You know, my family was yeah. uh, World War II survivors in terms of the bombings in London's and, you know, keep calm, carry on with a straight face and don't really say much. So I was kind of the anomaly in being the kid that really wanted to be the therapist and get in touch with feelings, yeah. you know. And, uh, but I think me moving to the States really opened my eyes to that as I developed within a culture where, you know, stereotypical American culture that I was, I was in was you say what you feel and you do it pretty directly. And 
for me, that was quite shocking. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, in terms of the stereotypes about mental health, it just you just don't do it. You don't talk about it. You shut it down. You don't access it. And you just keep calm and trudge along, really. It's fascinating. What shifted that for you um, or, or your family system, just experiencing enough pain that you're like, we've got to find resources? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was from this, uh, you know, looking at it from a systemic point, you know, I'm an only child and at 13 years of age, I was acting out, I was engaged in substance abuse and just Mm. all these impulsive behaviors, just things engaging in just all these toxic relationships, you name it, I did it. And, and I, I was the identified problem in my family. And of course, I was the kid that was like, hey, there's something going on here. And, and what was going on is I was experiencing sexual abuse at the time from my stepfather. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had this internal turmoil going in inside and it just, it just kept coming out externally. And, and I had a family friend. I had um, uh, a family friend who really uh, had encouraged me. She was part of the 4-H program. Um, she was the parent of a friend of mine. And she said, you know, I don't even remember the details of how it came across to me, but somehow I found myself in her therapist office and uh, mm. it, it, we started unpacking it. And then it really came out that the reason I was being you know, impulsive and engaging all these sexual acting out and substance use was just the fact that I was in such deep pain, like you said. And that was the only way that yeah. at the time I thought anybody would see it. And so when I shared mm. it, disclosed it, then... Some things changed. Now the abuse stopped, but systemically, you know, it always just likes to kind of stay the same. Yeah. Um, and I, I lived in that home, that abusive home, until my college years, and went out on my wow. own. And you know, I think there was a lot of healing that I had to experience in terms of really getting in touch with that and mm-hmm. and having compassion myself as being a teenage kid that was just trying to get by and figure it all out. You know, all of us have our things. You know, yeah. nobody is without it. Wow. And I mean, it's it, you, you either get hijacked by it and it takes you over or you turn it into something good. And that's the only way that I could have survived mm. it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Wow, you're so resilient. Um, you mentioned sort of therapists being a part of your healing journey. How are animals a part of that healing journey for you? Or um, were they? Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> my mom tells this funny story about how whenever – she thinks about me as a kid. I always had a, an, a cat under my arm or, I, you know, I was with an animal all the time. And I think that was uh, my way of getting my attachment needs met as a kiddo. I think for, mm. for many, many, many years, uh, I would say even into my adulthood, I had this distraction. And I would say that uh, animals were my siblings and then it was in my own recovery that I realized, well, they really weren't, Sarah. That's how you coped with the fact that you really felt mm. alone. So animals mm. have always been part of my healing journey in terms of their, their ability to be present, their ability to just know who you are and accept you for who you are and all our challenges and faults and weaknesses and strengths and positive qualities as well. And any of my most positive experiences I had in my childhood, there was always a horse, there was always a dog, there was always a cat. You know, I, I, I was telling my husband recently this, this story about how I would 
uh, as a teenager, I would literally lay on my Labrador, across my Labrador, like across her, her belly. And I would have this, and this is obviously when I was in the depths of my trauma. When I look back at it now, I can, of course, see that. Mm-hmm. That I would have this fantasy that if I ran away, I would take my dog with me and we would survive in the woods together. And I could lay on her stomach and she would be supportive and hold me. And that, mm. that was really it. It was, it was the, the way that I had to cope at a time when I felt really overwhelmed. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I really appreciate the presence of animals and, and doing some of the work that I do. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you've been hurt by humans, it's hard to give them street cred when you're trying to do your personal work. So sometimes with animals, mm-hmm. they have a little bit more going for them in terms of maybe we'll give them a chance to see us. It's mm, so good. I think um, Megan on our team, who is our equine director, often talks about how yeah. horses, we do some equine therapy for yeah. our milestones clients, which is our um, residential trauma program. And so often horses are the first like gateway to trusting, trusting themselves, trusting other people because they, they don't have those associations um, with the hurt. And so I think it's really fascinating. And it has me wondering kind of, did you jump right into doing equine therapy or is that something that you got your master's and then kind of rekindled back your love with the animals? What did that look like? There was a time in my 20s when I was out of working in the, being in the equine world. Uh, I pined for mm-hmm. having relationships with horses again. I was in the middle of a divorce. I was going through some other challenges that the idea of being with horses was something that I really wanted, but I just, for a variety of reasons, it just wasn't going to happen at the time. So I always had the idea of bringing my love for therapy and combining that with my love with horses. When I got, uh, mm-hmm. when I got trained in EMDR, which about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, roundabout, I always knew that they'd come together. When I was an undergrad, I did some volunteering for a therapeutic horseback riding program. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's always been in there, I think, but it, I, I think I had to have a greater level of confidence in myself and maturity to bring forth from within me, some of the ideas that I had, I was really scared, to be honest with you. Mm. I had the idea of some of the things we'll talk about later in terms of what to bring out in terms of EMDR therapy and equine. Yeah. I had that there probably for 20 years, but I had to really get centered, more centered in myself because it felt risky and it felt very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, therapeutic world or the animal assisted therapy world or just the human world, it just felt really risky to say, here, here's my idea, and then let go of the outcome and just hope that whatever happens, happens. So I always kind of knew that for me, that was maybe my dharma, my path, but I didn't have the mm. courage for quite a while until finally it was, I was at a yoga retreat with one of my yoga mentors and the short short version of it was you're either going to do it or you're not, but you're going to regret if you don't. So either do it or don't stop yeah. complaining about the fact and just, you know, blank or get off the pot, you know, <laughs> and I had to because it, we all it need just, someone like that. Yeah. 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 And so I did. That's great. I love it. You know, equine and EMDR both are like two modalities that I feel like a lot of people like hear about and are curious about. But there are even like a lot of probably misconceptions about their benefits and who's best served by them or even what they look like. I remember 
my first vision of kind of like equine therapy when I heard about it. I was like, oh, I get to ride horses and like heal myself. <laughs> and, and that's why what it is all the time. Um, so I, I would love to hear you just sort of talk about those two different modalities individually and then sort of the work that you're sort of pioneering around bringing those worlds together. Certainly. So like Mackenzie was saying, you know, when you have folks come to your programming, how they often first time they connect with horses and they get a greater tolerance for being able to be in touch with themselves as they relate to horses. So if you take that concept, um, let's talk about the equine therapy component of it first, and then we'll extrapolate from EMDR. So so equine therapy in and of itself, you know, the, the interesting thing about it, it, it's although our field really wants to and is moving towards it, there's not technically an agreement about equine therapy is this. So if we pulled it back and thought even about animal assisted, excuse me, animal assisted therapies, mm. in the ideal world uh, with equine, we're actually looking at the interactions with the horse horses, horse or horses, and the human or humans in context of the larger way of what is the kind of therapy I do see, what's the lens I see this interaction with the horse through. So for example, someone who maybe is a a gestalt therapist would see an equine interaction and utilize that moment in a different way than someone who has a solution focus approach or, you know, we'll talk about EMDR in a minute, but so there's not technically a, this is how we do equine therapy. There's a lot of models out there in terms of programs that have developed uh, over the years in terms of organizations that have created a model and said, this is how you do it. Come to us and get trained in that. Some foundational trainings and you know, ways of relating to the horses and how to relate to the clients. Each model will have its own way of thinking about it and teaching it. And so uh, animal-assisted therapy overall can really depend on if the therapist, first of all, if they are a therapist doing the work. So we have to make sure when people are saying they're doing equine-assisted therapy, they are a therapist. Mm. Otherwise, we'd be saying equine-assisted coaching, or we'd be saying equine-assisted learning. So the 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 language in the field can be kind of tricky. So making sure when we say equine therapy, so for example, you guys, you know, Megan is exceptional and is a therapist and provides equine interactions with the lens of a therapist, and that's an example of providing equine-assisted therapy. So the interactions, in, in summary, the interactions with the horse are seen through the lens, this is in the ideal world, seen through the lens of whatever therapeutic modality the provider or providers are utilizing because their training is such that they're trained in that. And then they're also trained in how to work with the horses to provide the treatment goals. That's kind of the ideal way to think about it. So for example, you know, you all uh, are well-versed in working from the perspective of utilizing psychodrama and that is your uh, it's my understanding, at least. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're correct. But that's going to be key in your equine work. You know, that's that's going to come through, and how how your how your folks come through and interact with horses is going to be through the, seen through the lens of psychodrama, which is lovely because that is a modality mm. using uh, equine interactions to support the work uh, seen through psychodrama. So that's the the kind of wrap about equine therapy overall. So EMDR therapy, in contrast, you know, EMDR therapy. 
Francine Shapiro created EMDR therapy 35 plus years ago. And at the time, it was just this weird stuff. You know, you do this finger wagging across their Mm -hmm. eyes and then something happens with the memory. And, you know, at the time, Francine thought it was a behavioral, she was a behaviorist and thought it had to do with extinction and uh, the research and time and application of this beautiful work with clients is showing that it's really more than that, that we're actually accessing the neural networks in the brain. We are processing people's unhealed stuff yeah. that's locked in there neurologically. And it's we're not just going into the cortex and go, hey, let's just change your thoughts. People are literally going, well, that's interesting. I'm not triggered by that thing anymore because they're their memories have literally reconsolidated. And our research mm. shows us that it's very much like what we think happens with REM sleep. Mm. So our brain accesses the material, we, we process it because we have this natural healing mechanism within us. And what does EMDR stand for? Yeah, it's welcome to, <laughs> welcome to the world of <laughs> long language. So eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Which is maybe what you do when you do REM sleep. Right, okay. right, right. So this concept, really what we're seeing in research is when people are able to pay attention to the inside, their internal experience, and also pay attention to something on the outside that's bilateral in nature, Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes not even bilateral in nature, to be quite honest with you. If they can pay attention Mm -hmm. to the outside and the inside, and we can activate the parts of the brain that do that processing, like in REM sleep, The brain will start processing the memories, picking up associated material and basically healing the distress that caused their symptoms. It's not just about PTSD. You know, I'm sure the folks that, you know, come to your program, they're not just coming. And I don't mean just to minimize it, but they're they're coming in with that. These are these disturbing life events. They may or may not think it has to do with the past, but uh, it does. Uh, And so EMDR therapy is driven by this concept that our natural healing mechanism kicks in. It's very similar to REM sleep. So combining equine and EMDR, putting those two things together. So equine assisted EMDR, taking the idea that animal assisted therapy as a therapist, I take in what's the way that I see clients through an EMDR lens. So any interactions, there's eight phases of EMDR. Any interactions that are either organically or directed with the client, with the horses, the folks who are doing equine assisted EMDR will know what phase of EMDR they're in. So there's eight specific phases and, uh, you know, all the details at this point are a little bit too long and lengthy, but we go from stabilization to processing the trauma memory, getting into the material, right? That tough stuff. And then we get to and integrate that all into their day-to-day life. So the challenge for me in the field of equine-assisted therapies is that there wasn't a phased approach with working with trauma. So, you know, folks don't come to you and just barge into their trauma because we know that that's not going to, they're going to get unstable and who, (laughs) we can't do that. You know, we just have to land and get calm and feel safe before we can start poking on that traumatic material. So that was not happening in the equine therapy world. People were just getting thrown into the arena with the horses, see what comes up, and they were getting dysregulated, dissociated, and engaged in reliving and reactivated. And that doesn't heal, that just traumatizes. So equine-assisted EMDR is based on the folks who are doing equine-assisted EMDR as providers are trained in the phases of EMDR. And every single interaction with that horse is woven in and offered in relation to what phase of EMDR they're in. 
So Lindsay, you were talking about how, you know, you kind of thought in the origin, original thought about equine therapy, it's like, oh, I get to ride. Equine assisted EMDR is not about riding. You might get some in, but the reality is, is 95% of this work, if not 100%, is all due online because just because people ride doesn't mean they're present. Mm-hmm. So if someone's not present on the ground, I am certainly not going to put them on a horse and put the pressure on the horse of the client to not dissociate and make the assumption that's going to get them present. So the interactions with the horse help them move through EMDR. And, you know, I've seen some unbelievable, awe-inspiring experiences. You know, EMDR therapy is intense stuff. It can be. And I've seen some people that couldn't tolerate EMDR in my office, but if we're utilizing an equine-assisted EMDR approach, they can tolerate it more because it just feels safer for them to be in the presence of a 1,200-pound animal or a mini. Uh, or donkey, you know, that helps them know you're okay. You are safe because I'd let you know if you weren't. That's really cool, the combination. I think under, that's really helpful understanding the lens of equine therapy that it is paired with another modality yeah. kind of always yeah. in some way, shape, or form. And so I feel like I have a deeper understanding now of sort of what you're doing. Hey there, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, if you are a mental health professional interested in learning more about equine-assisted EMDR, we invite you to join Sarah at OnSite in September of 2023. Through an equine-facilitated approach, the participants of this 30-hour training are taken step-by-step through the eight phases of EMDR in partnership with equine, covering the how-tos of integrating EMDR and equine-assisted psychotherapy with equine-assisted EMDR therapy. At the end of this course and through completion of all other course requirements, participants will be equilateral trained and certified. For a complete list of the qualifications or more information about equine-assisted EMDR, you can visit eaemdr.com. And if you want to hear more about the specific training that Sarah is leading at OnSite, you can head over to our show notes today. And as there are people listening uh, that would want to experience sort of this combination of services, the equine EMDR, how do they find a therapist that's trained in it? And then uh, it sounds like, you know, it's a long process that they walk through. It's not like, oh, you're going to have this one revelatory uh, hour (laughs) with a horse. It's going to be a a series of sessions. How is that usually kind of set up or structured or is it different for everybody? Yeah. So because it's always through the lens of EMDR. So the person coming in to work with someone who's trained in equine assisted EMDR, my students are really uh, learning the importance of always knowing where they are in the EMDR phase So I have some folks I've trained who maybe they do all of the sessions with the clients in an equine assisted EMDR manner where they're doing phase one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all with horses. But then there Mm -hmm. are some clients that maybe they don't need to do all phases. They might do stabilization and preparation, which is what we call phase two of EMDR. They might do all of that with the horses and the rest of the actual trauma processing work happens in the office. So it's really flexible in terms of what the clients need and what the therapists need, depending on the the venue. In terms of equine-assisted EMDR clients, not everybody has the interest in doing that work. They don't have to. So 
just because I might like working with horses as a therapist doesn't mean it's appropriate for the client. So there are some clients that it may not be appropriate or maybe not even in their in their wheelhouse. I think the most important thing is that clients, excuse me, therapists are always aware of why they're bringing in the horse or horses to support the work. Because it's just like with any modality, we have to have a real reason just as opposed to just putting the horse in there and let's see what happens. So if I'm really, for example, trying to help someone increase their tolerance for calm, uh, you know, I know that in your programming, that's so much of what you guys are doing, you know, really helping people to get stable, to know they can breathe and just get some space. Um, it's the same with me in, in my setting. So maybe we have this experience of being out with the horses without there being a lot of dust kicking up and maybe we're breathing out with air with them or maybe we are trying to find a way to help that client understand that they're not in danger by learning about horse psychology and how the horses are teaching us some things in the moment. The difference is, is that then from an EMDR lens, I'm then utilizing some what we call dual attention stimuli and some other ways of reinforcing that in, in the brain in terms of uh, how we install it. So people get a lot of resourcing and a lot of uh, skills that way with the horses. So there's a lot of flexibility in it. I have some clinicians who that's all they ever do is equine system jar. And I have some who just use some phases. It really depends on the clients. I have some clients that when we would get into really deep phase four work, which is the trauma processing phase or one of the first phases of processing, they would say, okay, so I know I'm going to see you on Thursday and this is when we're going to start working on this memory. And I want to be out the horses with that. I don't want to just be in office. So we have this cohesive partnership about what the client really thought would be the best way to support their processing. And sometimes it's the horse that day, horses, and sometimes it's not, but it's collaborative in nature. There's no right or wrong that way. You just always have to know what phase of EMDR therapy you're in. That's my mantra. Having done some EMDR work myself, I you mentioned like the bilateral simulation and, and that would be what I would really associate it with. So when you're bringing a horse into that, how are you facilitating that bilateral simulation? Is it through walking? Is it through visual? Is it like, what is that? I'm just fascinated. All of the above. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> I actually called this, so I called this protocol the, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I called this protocol the equilateral protocol because we used to call what we now call dual attention stimuli, bilateral, hmm. because we used to have the perspective that it was about balancing left and right hemispheres. We now have more research, like I said, about REM. So when we extrapolate from that and think now it's dual attention stimuli, the way in which we do the eye movements or the tapping or the sounds, we are only limited by our imagination. A lot of people think that it means, oh, we put the person on the horse and we're doing bilateral because of the movements with the horse. And that may or may not be the case. But again, because I specialize in working with complex trauma and dissociation, that's not necessarily going to be the best for everyone because not everybody is going to be able to be present to have that experience. So it also requires a lot more manpower, woman power, person power, to be able to have sidewalkers, to have someone there to support the horse. I mean, there's a, the larger team we need in order to really make that happen. 
So in answer to your question, the horse in and of themselves is actually a form of dual attention stimuli. So I'll see, and, and I love that you shared that you've done EMDR, when you get in the inside and you bring whatever it is that you started processing up, whether it was mm-hmm. eye movements or tapping or any other kind of sound or physical movements, you would have been aware of what was happening in the outside and being able to pay attention to the inside. Whatever it is that happens in the arena that allows it. I, I've used trees. I use eye movements. I use tapping. I use moving the horse from one side of the arena to the other or looking between the ears of the horse or looking at one horse over there and one horse over there. So whatever it is that it takes to help that happen, it really organically comes up in the, mo- in the moment. And because of the fact that I don't depend on writing, it enables me to have a lot more flexibility in the moment. Yeah, and it means we have to be creative. Yeah, exactly. To help people stay present, and because the the way that I really like to work is have the horses be able to be having the freedom of movement to come in as they want. So there's a a fluidity in this. There's kind of an energy exchange with the horses in that way. What's lovely is I see over and over again that when horses are given choice in the work, they will come in at pretty key moments for clients and help them be able to maintain dual attention stimuli. And I don't mean not from an anthropomorphizing perspective in terms of the horses are intending to help the client do that, but it just inevitably does yeah. that as the client starts to downregulate, horses are coming in and the clients get uh, learnings and ahas and connections. EMDR, we call it adaptive information. Let's just call it helpful stuff. Yeah, They get helpful stuff. They get these insights and they get them because they'll see the horses through the lens of what they're working on Mm. um, and get some real profound connections. So it's all part of the soup is what I usually say. There's there your own, you're not limited in the way that you do with attention and stimuli. Interesting. I think one of my favorite things I've heard Megan, our equine director, talk about is just how the horses bring a whole nother element to it. Like they have, they're an autonomous being in there. And so sometimes the client will make up like the, you know, it's all about me when really it just might be the horse saw something and it spooked them or, you know, so I loved hearing you talk a little bit about how the horse is coming in as an autonomous being and, and is a part of the whole equation of it. And it's not a controlled factor, but I think it represents a lot of what we are doing. You know what I mean? Like things being outside of our control within that environment. And so I think that's really interesting. I wanted to hear you more talk about how do you manage, quote unquote, the personalities of the client you're working with, the horse you're working with, a lot of the dynamics that come up in that in this really vulnerable and safe container that you're creating. I'm just interested. So the first thing to me is having um, the perspective that it's all right and perfect the way that it is. And Mm, so this is kind of a spiritual thing for me, trying not to make something happen. I even say in the trainings, the right people show up at the right time. So the right horse will show up or not at the right time. So the way that this modality really sees the, Horse and human interactions is again through the lens of EMDR therapy. So, EMDR therapy has this perspective that however we see the world, so an interaction that we're having with the world, when there's unhealed material, it's what's locked in the nervous system, those experiences are going to light up that unhealed material. So, Let's say we three were out in the arena, like paint a picture where we're out in the arena 
on our, your beautiful property in Tennessee, right? And we're seeing this beautiful rolling hills and we see this herd of horses. It's not even taken in the arena. Just look at those horses. You could pretty much guarantee that if we are in some unhealed neural network of material, we each will see that interaction differently because the neural network mm. we're in is going to be the filter through which we see that experience. So some equine therapy folks will say it's metaphor, which I would not say, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just a different perspective because from an EMDR perspective, it's the unhealed, literally neurological stuff that if I see this horse, let's mm. say that's looking away, the classic thing you might say is, oh my gosh, that horse doesn't like me. I'm unlovable. I'm, I'm terrible. And down the rabbit hole they go. Whereas someone else that isn't activated by that, by maybe some uh, attachment trauma, we go, wow, look at that horse taking care of themselves. They just need to take a breather because the moment was a little too overwhelming for them. And so the lens through which we see the equine interactions is where we learn about people's unhealed mm. trauma histories. And that is what's lovely about it is because they, as you said, they have their autonomy, the horses can come in or not. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off. I see a lot of assisted uh, equine assisted folks who will say, I got to figure out the activity I've got to do with my horse because I'm trying to do this with a client. I'm like, I don't know if we have to do as much, as much as we have to be in the moment and utilize what shows up mm. within the phases of EMDR we're in. So it's a lot more mm. permissive and it's a lot more flexible, although there is always that clinical perspective that trauma work is phased. So we could have, let's say, that same interaction where we're three watching the herd of horses and seeing it differently. If I'm in phase two, I'm going to have a, as a therapist, I'm going to have a completely different way of looking at that interactions in relation to the work I'm doing with a client than maybe I'm in another phase of EMDR. So a horse could do the same behavior in front of me and with mm -hmm. the same client over a series of sessions, let's say by some magical thing, they do the exact same behavior. One day I might work with it in one way because I'm in a different phase than I am in maybe next week. All depends on the phase I'm in. Hmm. It's, I'm struck listening to you talk about how much we're learning about trauma right now and how quickly like this field is advancing and other fields around supporting mm -hmm. people that have experienced trauma. And I'd love to hear sort of your perspective of, of that just as somebody that's both been a, a trauma survivor and in the field and are sort of watching the learning start to be applied in new ways? I love that question. I can go so many places with it. I think one of the things that I really got in touch with in my own recovery is that how much I depended on my cortex to try and help me shut stuff down. So analyze mm. things, think about things, stay in my head. That was a nice little creative dissociative strategy I had to not know how I felt and not get in touch with deep raw aloneness pain and, and that really foundational attachment trauma. And so the parallel, I think, is that as we learn more about the brain, as we learn more about us as an organism, like if we think of ourselves as an organism, that our cortex has... And we have a lot of different strategies to distract us from deep raw pain. 
But in the therapeutic world, we are very often top-down oriented as opposed to bottom-up oriented. And it's lovely that, as you said, Lindsay, we're starting to understand more about the brain and see that maybe our cortex is not, I mean, yes, it downregulates the affect. Yes, it helps us to hopefully be able to shift states so we can get calmer and not have the limbic system hijack us. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's not easy to do when you're triggered and in the stuff. So I think yeah. modalities that are appreciating we do have this cortical function. We do have, and I always come from a structural dissociation theory perspective too. So this kind of comes in. You know, we have parts of ourselves that are stuck in trauma time that have the perspective that we still need to do these strategies from the past. When all that is running amok, hmm. we need therapies that go, hey, you are more than just your thoughts and get present. Hmm. Because no matter what kind of therapy we do, if we are not present to our internal experience, pleasant or unpleasant experience, we ain't going to get far in our therapy because we're designed mm. to be embodied. You know, we're designed to be aware of our internal and external world, but because of trauma, uh, that's not something that we've been able to know is okay. So I think we are shifting from this. I don't want to make this an overarching statement. Uh, my sense of it is, is that as we're moving from more of a cortical, heady way of looking at talking about trauma that we're trying to find ways to go more bottom up because this is what really trauma survivors need as well we we need they need to learn skills yes we need to learn how to set boundaries you know all the things that happen in settings like yours where people get this foundational skill set that every human needs just to be able to engage in the world mm -hmm. on the day-to-day -day, the day-to-day but in terms of uh, healing the trauma from the bottom up, just finding embodied ways to increase people's tolerance for getting into deep raw pain, but still feel present with it. I think our understanding of the brain is hopefully helping us to have more compassion for trauma survivors in that we're not just being difficult or resistant or yeah. challenging in the therapy world, right? Because there's a lot of pejorative stuff about trauma survivors when it's really just they're just trying to survive. I mean, their hindbrain is like, this is what I know to do because I'm in danger. And mm -hmm. unless proven otherwise, I'm going to do it because that's what the brain does. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what yeah. comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I think one of my um, favorite reframes around trauma has come from Kathleen Murphy on our team. And she says, like, for so long, we thought we associated trauma with what's happened to you, where trauma is what's happening, like, to you currently. So rather than looking at, like, X, Y, and Z, this is my story, looking at how is my nervous system, my body still reacting and feeling like I can't be present. Um, you've mentioned the word dissociative a couple different times. And I wonder if you could just kind of break that down a little bit for us of why do we dissociate when we have trauma in our past? What is our body trying to protect us from? And, and how can maybe some of the work that you do help people find that presence again? Sure. Yeah, it's one of my, my favorite things to talk about. So the term dissociation, <laughs> which is often confused with the word disassociation, right? So dissociation yeah. is in summary, and, and I'm coming from a structural dissociation theory perspective, is that it's a way of not knowing one's internal experience. What the heck does that mean? 
So someone who has unhealed trauma, I like to think of it as not just an event that's happened, but it's also what hasn't happened. So I often call it the ever-present sense of absence. So when people have Mm. uh, complex trauma, especially so what was done to them, often at the hands of their caregivers across developmental stages, but also what was not. So it's what was withheld, love was withheld. So acts of omission and commission. So that's kind of how I think about the trauma spectrum. In our field of therapy, I think sometimes we therapists, um, I was certainly trained this way in the beginning, was looking for what's the event? What's that thing? What's that moment in time we go chase after instead of what's the general water that you swam in? You know, what's the atmosphere? What's the sense of your environment? Was it safe to be you in that environment? So what this has to do with dissociation, that being said, is that uh, I often give, I'll give you an analogy that I give a lot of folks. So if we think about the qualities of a fence, a fence is structured, predictable, mm-hmm. you know, what's helpful should stay on the inside, what's unsafe should stay on the outside. Now, if you were to imagine that we have an electric fence. So an electric fence might be on, might be off, can be unpredictable. It's supposed to keep things that are safe in, but at the same time, keep unsafe things out. But there's an element of pain associated with it. So that's really what attachment pain can really feel like. Our caregivers are supposed to be Mm. nurturing, supportive, have boundaries, be consistent, keep unhealthy things out, healthy things in. That's really what a healthy attachment relationship is. So when we're children, dissociation is the best way that we know to distract ourselves from deep raw pain, especially from attachment wounds. So I always say Mm. it's like putting on a glove and grabbing a hold of the electric fence and like, I'm not getting shocked. You're really getting shocked. You're getting deep raw pain, but you're not aware of it. So it's like, oh, it's not happening. Mm. So in answer to your question, I think about a dissociation is really this concept of non-realization. I don't want to know how I feel. I don't want to know what I think. I don't know what my body's got going on. I don't even want to know what's going on inside me. Because if I know what's going on inside me, I'm going to know that there's some deep raw pain there and that is intolerable. Yeah. So it, with simple PTSD, you know, single incident traumas are the same kind of category. If they're not attachment related, that dissociation can really be healed through a lot of mindfulness, grounding, getting present to oneself, really activating the cortex a little bit more. There are some folks that have a higher level of dissociation that have a sense of distinct separateness internally that maybe that is not enough. So what I found in terms of the equine assisted EMDR work specifically is that my most complex folks are the folks that go out with the horses with me first, because Mm. that's often where the dissociation shows up because it's when they're going to meet or greet a horse, they're moving into relationship and that can be highly triggering the conflict between I want to approach you, but at the same time, that feels really dangerous. And that's what dissociation does is this push and pull about, am I okay to be present? And it always shows up there. A lot of times when we're wrapping up interviews, Sarah, we ask people what something that they do personally to stay centered or grounded is. And I was just curious if you've got a practice. I do. I do. I yoga. I mean, it's without a doubt, it's my yoga practice. And it's, I mean, I've been blessed to have the experience of yoga can be in my life for probably 21 years or so. And probably as long as I had mm-hmm. EMDR now, I think about it. 
And I, it's not just the asana, it's not just the poses, it's really just, uh, I always describe it, it's the thing that helps me know the difference between what's real and what's not. And it's the exact same thing that horses do for me. They remind me of the difference between what's real and what's not. So I can be in some drama in my head and my cortex will be running whatever story I've got going on in the moment like we all do. And if I can get on my mat, that's usually the answer And it's usually nothing to do with what I'm thinking. It's just the thing that gets me more oriented to what's really true is that I'm okay. And at the center Mm -hmm. of it all, that's really what's true is I'm okay. No matter what's going on in the outside, I'll be okay. And horses do that for me too. You know, I'm really grateful I have my horses in my backyard. And so I can go out there and I can watch them. And and then, you know, this is why this work came to me too, is because it's not like I haven't learned as my clients have that, They are the reminders. These horses are reminders of what's really true is they're okay. They're present. Mm. And so yoga and my horsemanship, and that's not just riding horses, though the learning and remembering over and over again that my horses just need me to be present all the time. I mean, they that's what they need in order to relate to me. And so that's what yoga demands do. That's awesome. I love how those two are correlated. I think they've come up several different times in little pops throughout our conversation. So yeah. I loved getting to see how they, they mm-hmm. tied together. Yeah. Um, and so you are joining us, as I mentioned on the front end, um, you're joining us for a training here in September. And we're just yeah. so excited to have you. And I mentioned that we were having this interview with you and our team was just so excited. They're like, she's brilliant. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> so I think um, I just want to encourage anyone that is a clinician to consider this, to think about it, to um, especially if you're in the EMDR space, um, who would this benefit, this uh, yeah. this particular yeah. training? So the the clinicians from, so there's two different perspectives. So from a clinician perspective, for people who are coming in and they're trained, they have some foundational training or trainings in providing some kind of equine or assisted therapy, people who really want to work more consciously mindfully and with a very clinical oriented perspective on how to work with trauma in a phased approach. So Mm -hmm. if uh, equine clinicians and if they're coming with their equine animal handler, we call them equine specialists or animal handler colleagues, sometimes people will come together in that, which I really encourage. Mm -hmm. If these folks have seen their clients get blasted out by treatment, if they've seen people maybe get really highly dysregulated and maybe they've wondered if they were going too fast or maybe they felt stuck with their clients or they have really complex clients that don't Mm. fit the mold and they think this is not what EMDR is supposed to be or this is not what equine is supposed to be. If they're a little, um, if they're a little overwhelmed with their clientele, I would say this is a good training for them. People who really, really want to get even more solidly focused on EMDR inevitably, no matter what training I do, any EMDR therapist will say, man, I really feel like I understand EMDR better because now mm. I'm taking it out with the horses. You got to know it because it's, 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 you're embodying it out uh, outside. So clinicians who really want to offer a unique opportunity for working with complex clients, especially actually, I think about it to add this If you're interested as an equine assisted provider too, of providing a specialty within your community that maybe other people Mm. don't. So 
I'll have some people that are doing equine assisted work that will do uh, phase two work, which is stabilization. And maybe they'll coordinate with other clinicians in their area and they'll provide specialty services for their colleagues. So it's a good networking opportunity and a way to uh, set your practice apart uh, in terms of mm. providing EMDR and equine in a UK manner. And there's also, I think, people who will benefit from this because even though it's not touted as this per se, it's, we do personal work. It's, it's not a training where yeah. we role play and we pretend that we're not clients. Like we are doing personal work. Horses know the difference. Yeah. You know, I just, mm -hmm. they feel the difference. And so uh, I'm not saying this is an opportunity to do personal work. I'm, but what I will say is that inevitably when people do personal work as part of the demonstrations with me or also as part of their learning, their practicums, because it is a live practicum-based event that you guys are hosting there, um, you get some amazing experiences as a learner. And I, I'm... It's a good byproduct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a learnaholic. So give me an opportunity to do some personal work at the same time. Pfft. Bring it, you know, so that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have gotten to know you a little bit more today. This was yeah, fun. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah I'm really, so much, Sarah. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, I'm really excited to bring Equine Assisted EMDR there. And you are a lovely uh, group of healers and your facility is magnificent. And I'm very grateful to bring the program there. Okay. We'll see you in September. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.